Well, welcome this morning to week three of our Back to the Bible series. If you haven't been here either of the last two weeks, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the sermons that set the context for what we're doing today, but I want to do my best to catch you up a little bit on the intro week and last week's sermon. The uh, central image of this series that we try to give is uh, a library, and this bookshelf represents the library that is the Bible. It's more than just a book. If you think of it, it's a library of books. There's 66 books, and, and these books, if you look back, tell us the story of God from the very beginning at creation through the history of Israel uh, and into the wisdom literature with the Psalms and Proverbs and so forth, and then the prophets as well. And then, of course, Jesus comes with the New Testament, and the four books of the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus' life, followed by the story of Acts, which is the story of the early church, and then the letters that give us help, and then Revelation that rounds all of this out. 66 books written by 40 authors across about 1,500 or 1,600 years in three different languages and multiple literary styles. This is an incredible book that tells a unified story that's told by God through the power of the Holy Spirit breathed on for a couple of purposes. And that's where we went last week. What is the function of God breathing on these books, of these books being inspired? And we talked about two things that uh, this does. And, and, and the first of these come, this comes from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was one of the last books that Paul wrote to young Timothy. And, and, and in chapter 3, he talks about Scripture. In those time, days, it would have been the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that he was referring to, but the, we, we bring these forward also to trust that Paul's words are true about the New Testament as well. 2 Timothy 3.15 is the first of those two things that it says that Scripture is able to do. What it says there is, uh, how from infancy you've known the Scriptures, talking about Timothy and knowing the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that Scripture is able to do because of God breathing on it is to lead us to salvation in Jesus, to make us wise. For that purpose. The second, though, comes in the two verses after that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 16 and following. As all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the second reason that scripture is God breathed, the function it has, is it is useful for these purposes to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us to be more like Jesus. And so last week, this is how I summed it up. Is in other words, an inspired Bible is able to lead us to Jesus and to train us to be more like him. Today I want to talk about the first of those purposes. How does Scripture lead us to salvation in Jesus? How is it able to do that? How does this book or this library of books lead us to Jesus? We'll get to that in a minute. Let's pray as we open God's Word this morning. God, we, uh, we thank you for the ways that you have breathed uh, on these scriptures, the way you have used them through the generations in the church, the ways that you've called the church back to faithfulness in times that we have gone and departed from it by coming back to your word and seeing what it is that you teach. And I pray in this day and in this age, we can be that kind of people once again, a back to the Bible kind of people who come to it trying to allow this authority to, to be over our lives through the Holy Spirit but also trusting that when we look again, sometimes there are surprising things that cause us to, to, to correct course, to be called back to faithfulness. And I pray today that you would do that uh, in us and through this book. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ Jesus might become central in our lives. It's all about him, and we want that to be said of us as we live faithful lives of service to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. 
One of the things I've discovered over the past few decades in walking with uh, church leaders and, and, and people who are trying to read Scripture faithfully is that the questions that we bring to the Bible shape what we find when we read it. The questions we bring shape what we find. This is actually a principle that's true in all of our lives. Whatever you choose to look for in life, you'll find. If you're looking for reasons to doubt God, oh, there are plenty of reasons. Difficulties in our lives, challenges, expectations that aren't met that we begin, if we focus on that, to find reasons to doubt. But if you're searching for reasons to believe in God, those reasons are to be found as well if you have eyes to see. If you're looking for reasons to be unhappy in your marriage and you search after them, oh, you will find them. We're all married to humans with mistakes, just as we have mistakes ourselves. If you search for that kind of thing, you'll find it in spades. But if you want to look for reasons, positive qualities in your spouse to be joyful, there are reasons to find that as well. The same is true in our friendships with our children in all relationships. The same is true about our outlook on the world. If you look for reasons to be pessimistic about the world and see all the flaws that are there, there are all kinds of things you'll find. There's all kinds of evidence. But if you look for reasons to find joy and to find hope, you'll discover those as well. We all find what we're looking for. And where you choose to place your attention and focus will determine what you discover. Now, if you think about that, in terms of our churches, churches of Christ have come from the American Restoration Movement. It was a movement on the frontier in the early 1800s that sought to draw people out of divisions and call them back to unity around Scripture and around Jesus. And we did a good job in many ways of that, but we had a lens we were looking through in order to do what we were trying to accomplish. What we were trying to do was unite the church. We tried to look to the early church for how to go about doing that, to simplify away from traditions that had clouded things and to go back to that simple uh, faith of the first century. A great task and, 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 and journey that we tried to be on. But when you do that, there's certain parts of this library you begin to focus on more than others. And a lot of what our early leaders said is, well, really, this Old Testament tells us about why we come to Jesus. And the Gospels, they even tell us a little bit about what Jesus is, but if you want to know how to restore the church, if you want to know how to bring things back to that simple first century focus, you'll spend a lot of your time in these books, the letters or the epistles, where Paul and Peter and others write about problems that are going on in the church. And that was our focus. We were trying to restore things, a good focus, which led us with certain questions to see certain things and focus on certain parts and books. Now, in no way, In my ministry, do I want to devalue the epistles and letters that are written in Scripture? They are so helpful. Some of those are our favorite books, aren't they? We continue to study them. I don't want to devalue those. What I want to do is I want to elevate the Gospels. I want to elevate Jesus and his life and his teachings so that it can be on par with this focus we've often had in the epistles and letters. I believe that as Christians, we should be following Christ, right? We should know what his life is, what his teachings are, and and the power that he promises through the Holy Spirit of God. And if that's true, it's really important that we know the Gospels and we elevate the life of Jesus. I'm really excited this uh, Christmas to begin a series that will go through Easter of this next year where we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus. We're going to be focused on the Gospel of Luke, uh, going from the birth story at Christmas time to the resurrection that we'll talk about around Easter time. And I'm excited because that, that's not something that we've done over the last couple of years is spend an entire time in an entire gospel. But I, it's part of trying to elevate that that I think is so important. I'm excited and prepping for already. I think Jesus actually speaks to this very topic I'm talking about in one of these books. In the gospel of John, 
Jesus actually addresses this topic of where our focus is and where the focus of Scripture should point us to. If you have your Bible, feel free to open to, to John. Uh, John chapter 5 is where I'll read from in a moment. You know, in uh, Jesus' day, there was a group called the Pharisees that aren't pictured too positively by the gospel writers. There's a lot that they don't quite get right, but I'll tell you, they had good hearts, many of them, I want you to know. I mean, we read about Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. There are some that become followers of Jesus along the way, but many of them never did. And I think there's a reason for that. You see, these Pharisees were actually back to the Bible kind of people. It was really important them to go back to the, the Hebrew Scriptures and to understand what God had called them to. Because the reason they had been in exile for so long before this time is that they hadn't followed the commands of God. It really had messed up. They followed after other gods. They were idol worshipers. And that was the reason they ended up in exile in a foreign land. So when God plants them back in Palestine, there's this group of, of, of people that are trying to be faithful to the text, trying to say, if we just know the Bible, and if we follow the Bible, then maybe God won't punish us again. And so they do everything they can to teach the Scriptures and to ensure that no one breaks any of these commands so that uh, we won't have to go back into exile again. That's their story, and that's where these Pharisees' focus lies. And in John chapter 5, Jesus has something to say to these Pharisees, these teachers of the law. So turn with me, if you would, to John 5, verses 31 through 38. I want to read this, and I want you to hear this in light of this series about the Bible and where its focus draws us. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he's testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me, and and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Wow. Challenging words that Jesus shares. Jesus starts off by uh, offering his credentials. He says, it's not enough to Uh, for Jesus to testify about himself even, he says. He says, but John the Baptist was a witness, a witness, a light that shined, trying to point people to Jesus. And the opening of the Gospel of John, if you turn back to John chapter 1, tells this story about how John played that role. I want to go back there to John 1, verses 6 through 9. Listen about John the Baptist and this ministry of preparation that he did, trying to help people be ready for the coming of the Messiah. It says there that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It says there that John wasn't actually the light. He was a witness to the light. And this idea of witness is one that I want to develop this morning. What does it mean for someone or for something to be a witness? I think it's important for us to understand. You see, John's purpose wasn't to draw attention to himself. That's not why John does his preaching and why he goes through baptizing people is to to, to prop himself up. He's not saying, look at me, trust me, follow me. Instead, John is saying, look past me toward the one that I'm pointing to. Because there's a light coming in the world, and I'm, not un- I'm, I'm unfit to even tie his sandals. 
Let's go back to John 5 and see what, he, what Jesus says after what he says. Uh, this is a, a bold message he says to these Pharisees that we need to hear today as well. Uh, verse 39 of John 5. It says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I want you to hear clearly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in this passage. He's saying it's possible that we can be so focused on the Scriptures that we miss the point the Scriptures are trying to make the entire time. I mean, there's no doubt the Pharisees knew the Scriptures. They probably had memorized most of, if not all, of those blue books on the shelf. Remarkable. But the Pharisees missed the Jesus that these Scriptures were pointing to the entire time. And if we draw that forward today, I guess I have to ask a similar question. Is it possible that some of us have been so committed to the Scriptures that we miss the very things the Scriptures have been trying to point us to? Perhaps it was the questions that we brought to the text that focused us in other places. But is it possible that we sought life in these books when these books were trying to point us to life in Jesus? The Bible is God's written word that points us to Jesus. In other words, the Bible is a witness in the same way John the Baptist was to the light that was coming, to this Jesus that comes. You see the parallel that Jesus is making here? John the Baptist was a witness. His ministry was to point people to Jesus. And in a similar way, the Bible has a, the same role. It is a witness. And the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. And Jesus' harsh word to the Pharisees is that they've come to the Scriptures to find life. But life is not found in the Bible. The Bible is inspired to point us to the true source of life, the way, the truth, and the life, which is Jesus Christ. The Bible serves as a wonderful witness. And it's been leading people to Jesus for nearly 2,000 years. But the Bible cannot save you. Jesus alone can save you. Jesus is Lord. This is what we sing and this is what we believe. And that's what John says, actually, near the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, I want you to see the reason why John writes this book. At the end, he, he kind of sets out and says, I want you to know what I've been doing this whole time, why I've been writing. And it's similar to this point about witness I'm trying to make. John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says there that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So why did John uh, write this gospel? Why did John compose his gospel? He tells us. He does this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's gospel is a witness, testifying to events and words that Jesus spoke, so that we might come to the same belief John does the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is who he said and claimed to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and the Scriptures testify to these things. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment maybe something you've done before. Imagine planning a, a summer trip or a spring break trip. You're going to go on a road trip with your family, and so if you're anything like me, you're going to, well, you're going to get out your atlas, right, which tells me this is a 20th century story, not a 21st century example, right? 
I keep this in my car, uh, Ram McNally Atlas. This is 2009. I need to update it at some point, probably. And my wife always wonders, what? Why are you carrying an atlas around? You got your phone. Uh, for those who may be new to maps, these are maps, and uh, they don't just come on our phones. And uh, so I want you to imagine with me, you're planning a trip to the Grand Canyon. And so you, you look on that map, and you find the highway system, and you find the, 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 the quickest route, the best route that you could take to the Grand Canyon. You decided to take a trip there. So you've got this map, and, 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 and you do everything you can. You keep it open in the car to make sure that you get to that route. You, you follow all the right steps. You, you go all the right highways. You, you get off the road when you need to on the interstate, and you, you get back on, and you finally arrive at your destination. And you get out of your car, and you walk up to the edge, the rim of the Grand Canyon. Some of you can image, picture this. You've been there before. You're, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and you're standing before it. Can you picture it? It's the Grand Canyon. And you take it in and you say, my goodness, what a fantastic map. Is that what you say in that moment? I can't believe how good and faithful this map is. I love this map. What a map. Other people are driving up and you're saying, did you get a map too to get you here? Did you pick the right route? Isn't it wonderful, this map that's gotten us to this place? And no one wants to see your map. They're wondering why you don't have your phone out if you're going to show it, right? And how ridiculous is it to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon while you're obsessed and focused on your map? In the same way, it makes no sense to read the Bible in such a way that we're focused on what the Bible says while we miss the risen Christ that it was pointing to the whole time. And that's what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders in John chapter 5. And if Jesus showed up in some of our churches, he might just preach the same sermon. The Bible is a wonderful witness. It's the best witness we have. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's changed my life, and my guess is it's changed many of yours. But life is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, this is what the Scriptures are able to do. The Scriptures are able to make you wise. They're able to serve as a witness to point you to salvation in Jesus. Now hear me close to church. I'm so grateful to live in the age that I do with the availability of the Bible. The fact that I can have a dozen Bibles on my shelf and pick from any translation, that's unheard of in human history. And not just that. Some of you, I see the glow out there. You're able to look on your own phones and tablets and read this Bible, it's that accessible to us. But whether you realize it or not, the church did just fine for 300 years before it ever had an agreed-upon list of books called the Bible. We're not Christians because of the Bible. Because once upon a time, there was no Bible. There were people who had seen the risen Christ. And as they'd seen the risen Christ, and seen him resurrected. They testified about the risen Christ. They told his stories. They didn't need a Bible to remember back these things. These were the stories that were the focus of their gatherings. They were the focus of their lives. They, they broke bread and they drank the cup to remind them of the story, but they didn't open to book, chapter, and verse because those book, chapters, and verses didn't come for centuries later. They had a few letters that Paul wrote to them that probably they traded around. But the Christian church was not launched around an inspired book. It wasn't a book event where the church started. It launched around a verifiable event. 
It launched because the Holy Spirit of God showed up at Pentecost. 3,000 were baptized into the name of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the church grew and thrived not because they passed around a book, because their lives represented a story that they believed to be true, they were willing to risk their lives for, even die for, and many did. Because they trusted an event that they were witnesses of. A while back, I saw an online commercial for a church that was very well done. One line in that ad, that commercial, caught my attention. It described their church as being built on the Bible. And the reason that phrase caught my attention is because I flipped through the scriptures and I realized Jesus never said that he built the church on the Bible. What he said in Matthew 16, after Peter confesses him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, is that on that rock, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, on that rock, Jesus will build his church. The Bible is super important to me. The Bible is super important to this church. But Jesus doesn't say he's going to build the Bible, the church on the Bible. He says he'll build his identity, the church's identity on Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the foundation upon which we build our faith and upon which our church stands. In the next chapter, in chapter 17 of Matthew, I want to point out another thing that's said right after chapter 16 where there's the scene. There's a scene of the transfiguration. Do you remember the scene? Jesus and his closest friends go up on this mountain. Now, I want to read this story to you. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Listen, listen to this story. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Peter knows exactly what to say in the moment, right? If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it have been cool to be there at this scene? I can't even put this into words or imagination. I mean, the scene of, of Moses showing up and, and, and Elijah showing up and then Jesus here and then Peter Proclaiming the right thing. Let's, let's keep this all like it is. This is great. I don't want to go down the mountain. Never been in that place before. God seems so close. We don't want to let him go. We wish we could just go right back up that mountain and be there. Imagine being present on this mountain when Elijah and Moses appear. Two of the most important figures from the Old Testament. One way of reading this story is that Moses and Elijah are there representing the law and the prophets. Moses is attributed those first five books, the Torah, he represents the law, and Elijah's the great prophet, right? That represents the, the, the prophets. And, and the law and the prophets have showed up with Jesus on the mountain, and they're there to witness, just as they do, to Jesus' glory. He's glorified on the mountain. So what does Peter do? He wants to build three shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, as if they're all on par with each other, as if they're all equals. But did you notice the voice from heaven, what it says? 
God says, no, no, no. They're not equal. These two have served their purpose in leading you to Jesus, but they're not the same. They're not equal. They're not on par with each other. And having done their work, Moses and Elijah disappeared. And Jesus is glorified. And I think if, if, if we were to have a similar experience, if Jesus were to take up us, us up on a mountainside, I, I think there might be another figure in the scene. I can imagine Moses and Elijah there, but I imagine also Paul, the Apostle Paul being there, representing these letters and epistles that were written in the New Testament, half the New Testament written by Paul. And I can imagine us saying, wow, these are all of our heroes. Let's build a shelter for each one of them. And I can hear the voice from the Lord still saying today, no, 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 you, you don't get it. These, these three were intended to point you to Jesus, but ultimately it's Jesus that is without equal. Jesus who is Lord. And having pointed to the risen Christ, Moses, Elijah, and Paul would disappear and we'd be left with the risen Christ because he's the one that the scriptures have been pointing to the entire time. He's the point of it all. And that's what it means to read the Bible in such a way that it functions as a witness. We're reading the Bible in such a way that it is leading us to Christ but never confusing the words themselves with Christ. Church, we follow Christ, don't we? And the Bible shows us how. And aren't you grateful for this map? Aren't you grateful that we have a map? It would be really hard to get to the Grand Canyon without some kind of help getting us there. In the same way, it'd be really very hard to find our way to Jesus without a map that points the way. Without the map, without God breathing on it, we wouldn't be able to be wise to be led to salvation. Point is not the map. We worship King Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Next week, I want to talk about the second part of 2 Timothy 3. We talked this week about how Scripture leads us to salvation in Jesus. Next week, I want to talk about how it trains us, how it corrects, rebukes, and encourages us to be trained to look more like Jesus. I know that's our desire. And this morning, Maybe there's some of you that are realizing for the first time that salvation's found in Jesus and in Him alone, that He's the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe this morning is the morning you want to give your life to Jesus. The Scriptures point us to that. God breathes into these stories so that we might come to believe, as John says in John 20, that He's the Son of God, He's the Messiah. And if you are not yet in a relationship with Jesus, if you've not yet confessed your sins and and repented of your old way of life, and walked into the newness of life in Jesus, that's what the map is trying to point you to. And if maybe you're struggling with that map, and maybe for the first time you're opening it and don't quite know how to read it, we've got some people that are pretty good map readers around here that would love to walk you through that process. Love to help you get to that place, not so that you can say, what a map, but you, so that you can say with us, what a Messiah. Jesus is the this morning, if you have that desire, we have prayer leaders in the back that would love to receive you. I'd love to talk with you after the service if we get a chance or reach out to me. There are many map readers here that would love to point the way to you. And that's our hope. That's our desire is that we would allow Scripture to do what it's intended to do. And it is able. It's able to make us wise unto salvation. Right now, I want to pray as we close our time this morning. And if that's a desire you have to know more about this map and ultimately more about the, 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 the person it points to, Jesus. I want to tell you more about that this week. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for this map. We thank you that 
Scripture serves as a witness, a powerful witness, and, and, and an inspired witness, a God-breathed witness that points us to Jesus. And God, sometimes we get caught up and, and we minor in things that the map really isn't intended to do. And we can divide over those things. And God, we want to repent of the ways that we've used the map to not do what's first and foremost. And that's point people to Jesus and to be trained to look more like him. God, we want to major on the majors. We, that's what, our, uh, what the restoration movement has been all about, is to point us back to the source of it all. And we trust this map points us well and perfectly to Jesus. So my prayer this morning is for those of us who have come to salvation in his name, that we would continue in that and that we would continue in this journey of transformation we'll talk more about next week. But God, if there are some this morning who have not yet made that decision, would you help them discover this map? Would you help them discover a community that travels on this journey together? Would you lead them to salvation in Jesus? That's our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.